Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. You're listening to Pushing the Limits with Lisa Tarmati. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have a very, very special podcast, but before we get underway, I just want to remind you, if you want to reach out to me, you can do that at lisa at lisatarmati.com. Find me on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram, at lisatarmati, the same on Facebook. Uh, and I'd love you to come and check out our website and our flagship programs. We have three programs that we mainly uh, do our work in. We have the epigenetic program we have the run online run training system running hot and we also have mindset you which is all about mental toughness resilience and being the best version of yourself that you can be so make sure you go and check those out at lisatarmity.com right now today we have a very special guest all the way from new york city his name is sanjay raval If you haven't heard of Sanjay, he is an internationally uh, renowned filmmaker. He was in the human rights and international development sector for 15 years and worked in over 15, uh, sorry, over 40 countries uh, before he turned his love for photography and storytelling into his new career, which is filmmaking. Um, He's done a number of films. Um, Most well-known is his feature film, his first feature film called Food Chains. This was uh, produced with Eva Longoria and Eric Schlosser and was in over 1,100 theatres worldwide. Um, And his latest film is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, Sanjay is a lifelong runner. He's dedicated to doing distance running. Um, And he was also a follower of the late Sri Chim Noi, who uh, many of you runners may know of. He was an Indian spiritual leader who died in 2007. But he was very much into unifying religions and meditation and the power of uh, sport and athleticism to help you reach spiritual realms which I find really really fascinating subject and the film that Sanjay has just produced is called 3100 Run and Become and it's based around the fact that human beings are meant to do this long long distance running that uh, we talk about that we're born to run and it's particularly centered on the race in New York City Uh, 3,100 miles, this has been going for over 27 years I believe, Um, around a half mile block in New York City and every year about 14 to 16 runners come to test their mettle against this horrifically long, brutal, arduous race and the distances that they cover in that time is over 52 days um, is 3,100 miles. That is over, well, just up, no, sorry, just under 5,000 kilometers. That's like going right across the United States, but in a half mile block. So you can imagine uh, how hard this is. It's absolutely brutal. It's not something I would have ever tackled. It's too big. Um, but he talks uh, and shows in this film one of the characters, the main characters, is the Norwegian runner who has done this over 15 times um, and is really the world's best at this super, super, super long distances. So we get into a really deep conversation around philosophy and spirituality, uh, the power of running to transcend yourself, uh, the healing abilities of running, how it can connect you with Mother Nature and you know solve a lot of our modern day woes. So without further ado, here's Sanjay. 
Well, hi everybody and welcome to Pushing the Limits. It's fantastic to have you guys back again. We're nearly at the end of 2019 and I can't believe it. And today I have a special, special guest with, uh, with me who is sitting in New York City at the moment, uh, Sanjay Rawal. Welcome to the show, Sanjay. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's winter here, so I'm just trying to keep it together while you guys enjoy Mother Nature in a different way than I am right now. Yes, I bet. Yeah. Well, you're welcome to come over here anytime. We'd love to have you over in New Zealand. You can come and visit me. That would be fantastic. So have you ever been to New Zealand? I have. I haven't been there in almost 20 years, oh. but I am coming uh, for about 10 to 12 days at the end of February oh. to screen the movie that we're going to talk about. Oh, wow. Okay. I've got to make sure I get to that somehow. So we'll talk about that afterwards. So Everybody listening who doesn't know Sanjay, you will soon. So he has produced a number of films over his career. Um, but recently, one, a film that we're going to be talking about mostly today is a film called 3100. Sanjay, can you tell us a little bit about this amazing film? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the movie is 3100, Run and Become. And it follows um, a pretty diminutive um, relatively unheard of Finnish man named Ashprihanal Alto. He's a paper boy by trade. At the same time, he is an underground, multi-day distance running legend. The film follows him trying to complete the 3,100-mile race in the year 2016. This race is the world's longest certified road race. It's almost 5,000 kilometers. It's just a few K short of 5,000. But it takes place all around a half mile, close to a kilometer long loop in the heart of New York City. Runners have to try to complete at least 100K a day for 52 days in order to finish the race under that window. It's grueling. But at the same time, although it sounds like an absolute misery fest, a <laughs> suffer fest, people don't come out of it physically devastated. In fact, the only way you can actually toe the line for this type of a race is to have a deep understanding of the spirituality of long-distance running. So in the film, not only do we follow Ashprihan Al-Alto, but to kind of show how and why this race is even possible, we go back into time. We follow three other runners on their own quests, but runners who come from very deep traditional cultures of running. Uh, we follow an ultramarathoner on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. We go to the Kalahari Desert in Botswana and hunt with Bushman hunters who chase down game across two to three day long uh, treks. And we follow an aspirant in the highlands of Japan who is doing a thousand day trek of um, about 31,000 miles in the mountains outside of Kyoto. This shows the spirituality that's inherent to running that really fuels the runners in the 3,100 mile race. Wow, well, you, you're preaching to the converted here and a lot of my audience, of course, are avid runners. Um, and um, what really surprises me, I mean, um, I, have to, I have to tell you a little bit of uh, a story. I actually tried to get a documentary series done for Discovery Channel called Run the Planet. And we actually uncovered, so the Kalahari, the Navajo, the, the Mount Teo monks, the and, and a number of other um, tribes, people with stories and legends of doing long distance running. Uh, I didn't manage to pull it off. We did the, um, the pilot for the series, 
uh, in Australia reenacting an Aboriginal man's story who ran 250 kilometres to save a friend of his across the desert. Um, and that was the end of the, the project, unfortunately. But you actually managed to pull this off, which is uh, a huge, amazing feat to do because I know what these sort of things take. Um, but we, we came from the same premise that running is inherently, we are born to run, as the, the famous yeah. book says from Chris McDougall. We are born to run and we are made for this sort of long distance stuff and that we've done that throughout history. Um, and you have uncovered these amazing people doing these incredible things. What's interesting for me is you've come from a very spiritual background, and I've actually not come from that same background as a runner. Uh, come more from the the sporting and the you know, um, and I I think I left a lot of untapped potential sort of on the table now, looking back mm. because I didn't tap into. Uh, the, the more spiritual side. I think I did to a certain degree without really understanding it. Um, but, you know, the, uh, let's talk a little bit about Sri Chimnoy and what the races that he set up all around the world actually have to do with this 3,100-mile race um, and, and your, your, what, what your beliefs are around Sri Chimnoy and, and his attitude to long-distance running. First of all, I so wish you'd completed that series. It's, uh, it, it would have been awesome, and I probably wouldn't have had to do this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been complimentary. It would have been awesome. Yeah, but yeah we, we didn't manage to pull it off. As, as you know, there are lots of uh, hurdles to jump through when you're totally. trying to do Yeah. So, you know, to your question, I, I ran track in, in, in high school, and I, I, I grew up in the United States, and, you know, the state that I grew up in, California, has 35 million people. So... A lot of people ran track, you know, but kind of got disillusioned from everything at university and ended up after graduation moving from the West Coast of the U.S. to New York City, where an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy lived. His path really intrigued me because, and no harm, no foul, like there's no superiority or inferiority, but he really advocated uh, um, a pretty unified philosophy of not just making your heart strong, and, and trying to develop the, the kind of beautiful qualities that we have inside, like love and peace and joy. But he also felt that physical fitness was of paramount importance to achieving that sense of inner peace. And so he came at running and exercise from a totally different vantage point than I did. For, for me, um, you know, it was all about competition. Mm. And you know, when I was in high school, I would win a lot of races, but by the time I got to college, you know, I was no longer in that kind of top echelon. And you know how it is. It's like, mm -hmm. once you realize you're never going to be like at the very, very top, you know, or, or you're not going to win every single race. I know you won a lot of races. You start <laughs> really losing, you know, a sense of purpose. Mm. But when I came across Sri Chinmoy's philosophy, it was totally different, mm. you know, and, and, and this is reflective in all the cultures that we explore in 3100 Run and Become that there's something unique about running. And we just have to take it on faith that unlike any other activity, however wonderful, whether it's tennis or swimming or biking, that running connects us to mother nature in a completely unique way. Mm. And when I, when, you know, when I, I spent time with the Navajo and people will see in the film, our, our main Navajo character, Sean Martin says, when you run, your feet are praying to mother earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. 
you're showing them, you're praying to them, you're showing them that you're willing to work for the, the, the blessings of Mother Earth. And that's a philosophy that I've seen reflected in traditional cultures all over the world. And that was in Sri Chinmoy's philosophy, even though we don't, actually nobody really considers Eastern philosophy as something that really revolves around an act of, of, of physical fitness like running. Yeah. But in a sense, you know, it was men and women, humanity's first religion, that idea of connecting to nature and the, the energies both within and without through our feet. So when, when he kind of presented that to me and to others, it blew my mind. But I wasn't really ready for the philosophy. You know, I, I ran the 800 meters and, and, and the 1500 meters. But when I moved to New York to study with them in 1997, that was the summer that the 3,100 mile race was launched. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't even done a marathon. So the idea of doing 60 miles a day for 52 days just blew my mind. Yeah, absolutely. How, how does the human body, I mean, I've, I've, I've done, you know, the longest I've run is like through New Zealand, like uh, 2,250 Ks in 42 days, which is not as many, many per day as what they were doing, um, given we were on the road and doing book tours and things at the same time. But um, the, the amount of pain and the suffering that you do go through, and people have often said to me, did you reach, you know, this flow state and then you became... Uh, and I know that that's a, a lot of people experience that. And I, and I have to say, I had had times of flow state when I was in a flow state, but unfortunately I could never hold myself in that flow state. And uh, the suffer fest did, you know, it was about, you know, overcoming a lot of pain, um, amazing levels of fatigue um, with a lot of willpower uh, which we know is limited. You know, we all have a limited yeah. amount of willpower. And, and I was always hoping to reach that, that, that state of uh, self-transcendence, really, and, and never, but I hadn't dedicated myself to meditation and to the other sides of all that, um, probably enough, looking back, um, which I'm much more into these days. But back then it was all about, you know, the physical mental, the mental strength and the physical strength to actually prepare your body for this battle going in. And this is a completely different approach to what Sri Jimnoy had and what these people that are doing the 3100 um, have really. It, it, it's, and I wonder how do they actually get to that? You know, as someone who's, who's done a hell of a lot of running um, and not really achieved that flow state for long periods of time at least, how the heck do they do it? So there, there are two types of runners in the race. And, you know, again, no, no superiority or, or inferiority. But there are very few people on earth like you that have the mental fortitude to, like, will themselves through 40, 45, 50 days, you know, of, of doing, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 Ks per day. Like, you know that willpower will only take you so far. Mm -hmm. And in, in your darkest moments, you know, in the run, willpower is not going to offer you any light. If it's gone, then it's just suffer fest. Totally. So a, a lot of people who come to the 3100, whether they, they're, they come from a background of faith or not, they realize either in their first attempt um, or beforehand that if they don't kind of develop access 
to a place within themselves where they can be happy, simply just happy in the worst moments. If they can't be in that flow state at will, then it's going to be a long 52 days. Yeah. And, and, you know, a, a lot of people, I would say probably at least a third to a half of people who do it the first time, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of pleasure and pain. Mm. And those moments, like you experienced it in your, in your cross-country run, those moments are enough to get you up the next day. But they're not necessarily going to fuel every single mile. That said, it's like the people that come back and do it over and over and over, either through the race or outside the race, they really develop the power of meditation. And at the same time, like unlike your race, and I think you'll appreciate this more than most, the reason why they do the race on a half mile loop is so that you have access to your aid every half a mile. You have access to a bathroom every half a mile. There's no traffic. There's foot traffic on this loop from just the public, but it's a pretty isolated area of New York and you don't have to worry about cars or anything. So in that sense, your mind can like stop forgetting about the surroundings. Yes. And, and it's, it's a lot easier that way. Um, so that said, it's like this race, like the people that get the most out of it come at it the way you would now. They come at it knowing that you need to have access to that meditative side of you. Mm. And you need to train with that in mind. It's like you have to find a way to find joy or happiness in those moments of exertion. And that doesn't come spontaneously out in the supper fest. You have to build that in your training. Yeah, and you have to develop that, that skill and, and the years and years of meditation, I should imagine, to be able to reach that state. And, and that's something that fascinates me now. And, and, I'm, and I'm developing you know, those skills of late. But it's something that I wish I'd had back then instead of just the will and mindset and I'm doing this no matter what. Um, and, and it surprises me that how many people can override all of their, the pain and that, you know, we do have an amazing ability to, to deal with things. Um, but I cannot, I cannot in all honesty say to you, I enjoyed or I was happy in doing a lot of those races. Um, there was a lot of, you know, I want to achieve this. It's a challenge. It's um, an opportunity to find out who I am. And I think when we, when we are connected in nature, we, we do find out so much about ourselves. Um, and so even though I, I didn't approach it from a spiritual point of view, I think um, the stuff that I learned from it has been so, so powerful to helping me in, in everyday life. Um, and, and getting through obstacles. Are there people that, that are doing these types of things, in your opinion, just more, are they tapping in then to a higher power? Are they able to actually leave their, their, their suffering behind in some way? That's a great question. So like going to the time that we spent with the Bushmen and the Kalahari, these cultures that have been running for literally 125,000 years, they say you cannot separate running from God. You know, if, of course, if, if you want to run to become a, a better looking person, running will give that to you. If you want to run to become healthy, running will do that for you. But if you run with the intention, I mean, this is wild, but if you run with the intention of getting closer to the divine part of yourself, to the divine part of the universe, whatever you you label that as, Mm. running will get you there. 
Wow. I mean, just like if, if you meditate for just power of concentration, it'll do it. If you meditate to feel a little bit of peace, it'll do it. But if you meditate for self-discovery, to discover like the oneness you have with the divine that's everywhere, meditation will do that. And so when it, when it comes to running this particular race, people come into it as a pilgrimage. You know, you can either come into it with, with a mental attitude of like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to achieve this. But there was a runner, uh, an Israeli multi-day champion named Kobe Oren, mm-hmm. um, who did the race, I think in 2017. And across the first thousand miles, he was pushing. And he actually set an Israeli national record for the fastest time to a thousand miles wow. in the midst of this 3,100 mile race. But he realized that the true meaning of this race wouldn't reveal itself unless he moved into a completely different state of mind. And he realized that he had to take the race as a pilgrimage. And what that meant was not thinking about your splits, not thinking about how many miles you're doing each day, but really finding a way to focus on the meaning of each action, Mm. of each step. And when he got into that sense of, or lack of expectation, and when he got into that sense of focus, he realized that there there was joy there was actually happiness by looking at the moments, by looking at the specific actions and the steps. And that happiness wasn't going to come looking at your watch or looking at your daily mile totals. That happiness kind of existed in the middle of all that. But again, it's like, it all sounds like fun and games, Mm. but unless we have that kind of intention, we don't actually find where happiness really exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, overcoming changing a perspective. I mean, I never went into races with the the thought of winning, to be honest. Most of the time it was all about, you know, survival, getting through to the other end some which way. Um, and I've had some very spiritual type experiences underway, um, perhaps induced by, you know, fatigue, sleep deprivation, those types of things, hallucinations, um, and the things that you actually discover about yourself are just absolutely mind-blowing, even without the spiritual aspect. Um, but I do wish now that I had gone more into that side of things to be able to overcome the limitations. You know, what worries me nowadays as a, as a running coach, and we train 700-odd athletes all around the, the world, is, is the the danger that is involved with ultramarathon running because there is, you know, you can do permanent damage. I've done some damage to my body. Why do these guys not have physical damage from doing these extreme races or do they? Um, I've had, you know, big problems with things like rhabdomyolysis, um, kidneys, you know, not functioning properly um, from repeatedly breaking down too much muscle um, things like that, thyroid problems, adrenal problems, adrenal burnout. Do these guys ever suffer from those sort of normal physical breakdowns? Of course, muscle tears and, and those sorts of things as well. Um, and if not, why not? Why do they not have that limitation, those very human limitations on them? That, 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 that's a great question. You know, as, as opposed to most ultra-distance running, I mean, this is more akin to your, your, your 42 days across New Zealand hmm. where you can't push it. You know, you can't win the 3,100-mile race in a day, but you can lose it in a day. Yes. <laughs> and it's not like running a 24-hour race where you can say, like, I can push myself past the limit because I can sleep for two weeks. 
Yeah. And I can take care of like the damage I do across the next six months or a year. With the 3,100, imagine doing 100K, then waking up again and doing it again. Mm. And then waking up again and doing it again. Right. And the, the, the leaders are at, are at about 120K per day. Wow. So it's a totally different mindset. I mean, you know, the Kenyans say that when you run long distances, whether they're 10Ks or marathons, you have to run dumb, D-U-M-B. And like in the 3100, you have to have like a real sense of softness between your ears. You know, even physiologically, it's like if, you're, if your mind is thinking and thinking and thinking, your face muscles get tense, which tenses up, you know, your upper cervical vertebra which have ramifications all the way down your body yeah. and you start yeah. getting repeated use injuries, your, your knees aren't aligned, your calves aren't aligned, but frankly, it all starts in the mind. Mm -hmm. And so if you can find a way not to be in your mind, to cultivate, you know, your heart, your spiritual heart, the things that you focus on in meditation and bring those feelings and emotions and sense of self, sense of peace, sense of joy into your run, then it becomes an entirely different experience physiologically. You know, you're much more in tune with what's going on. You're much more in tune with the sense of balance. You have more patience. But in that patience, when you're not pushing, you can also experience a sense of happiness that you, you, you typically don't get in shorter races. And when I mean shorter, like, you know, 24 hours and less, where you're going like, I've got to get there. I've got to get there. I can't stop. I can't stop. You know, when you've got that type of an attitude in a race, you, you rarely dissociate from your mind. I mean, the trick for those of us running shorter races is finding ways in training like the Kenyans to completely get rid of expectation and to find a way to get into that flow state in the first couple of miles. Yeah, yeah. And, and that disassociation, I mean, I definitely use that to some degree. Obviously not to the degree that I would like to have used it and been able to take your mind away from the pain and the suffering in the body. Um, and, and that's one of the tools that I, you know, teach about a little bit. Um, and I do find like um, when you get into a rhythm, a rhythm is something that, that is meditative. Uh, and um, I'm often, if I'm running behind someone, I will use their feet as a, a little flicker of, left, right, left, right, and that, that's almost a trance-like state that you can be, get into, um, but I can't keep it in there forever, and that's the, that's the key point, I think, and that's the difference between these guys. So they are tapping into things that we as, you know, average not-so-spiritual human beings, if you like, <laughs> for the want of a better expression, um, and, uh, you know, can't tap into. And that's what I find absolutely fascinating because I know what it takes to run 70K a day. I cannot imagine the amount of pain that it would take to run 120 a day. It's beyond, it's certainly beyond my physical limitations um, and, and the, the amount of pain that you'd have to overcome is, is, is phenomenal. Um, but what you were saying there about... Um, stress and stress is I listened to an interview with Dr. Chatterjee um, that we were talking about stress and how like it's, it's an epidemic in our world um, and it's one of the killers and it's one of the, the most uh, problematic things and we are living in a constant state of alertness and fight or flight sort of state because of the society that we live in we're no longer being chased by lions but we seem to be living in that constant state. 
is meditation and uh, using even this running, this self-transcendent running, a way of calming the body and stopping those stress responses? So the, the curious thing is that running is humanity's oldest physical practice, maybe dance as well, that movement through your feet. And there is something electric when you're aware of it between the connection between Mother Earth and our feet, our lungs breathing in oxygen and air. There's something deeply nourishing and affecting that way. At the same time, meditation is humanity's oldest practice of contemplation not just getting rid of stress, but understanding who we are, why we're here, what we're meant to do in any given moment. And meditation gives us access to different parts of our body, or of our being, I should say. It's like we've got a tool belt on and we've got 15 sets of tools, but we're using a hammer mm. 24 hours a day. You know, it's like we might not even know all the other tools that we've got, but Meditation is a very simple, very natural way for people to go, wow, when I'm stressed, I don't have to like think about it. I don't have to like, you know, just become obsessed with what's going on. There's another part of me that will allow me to feel something different, to allow time, for example, to take its course. At the same time, if, if the stress requires something hyper-focused, you know, we can pull that tool out and apply it to the moment and get rid of that stress in a very constructive, you know, analytical way. So meditation and running, you know, are really the two oldest tools that we have. And it's a question of uh, coming back to that as, as a civilization, as a species. And, you know, obviously as individuals, we can come back to that. Just, you know, we just have to, we just have to take those first steps. I actually had a, an argument, or not an argument, but a discussion with, um, producer of the the portal which is a new movie that's come out tom cronin who was on, on the podcast a few weeks ago and he was he's in, uh, it's all about meditation and the power of meditation to heal the whole world and, um a very very interesting man and and i said to him i believe meditation uh, running is a meditation and he said to me no it's not a meditation it's running and i said well, oh no it is yeah it is. And, I said, and i and i had this discussion with him and he said no because running you are in a sympathetic uh, nervous system state and you're not in a parasympathetic state it's that it is it, for, for i would say for most people um myself included uh that was true up until a few years ago but i i was trying to understand why the people who do the 3100 mile race most of them come back and do it a second time a third time the main character in the movie ashby hanal you know, did it again last summer for, get this, a grand total of 15 times. Wow. He's completed that race 15 times. Mind-blowing. When, when you understand that running and meditation can actually go together, you know, and you explore what that truly means. I mean, again, it's, it's not simply the fact, and I, I get where he's coming from. It's not simply saying, like, my running is my meditation, the way that chopping onions is my meditation. It's like, you know, I, I, I get that the kind of like, you know, hyperbole yeah. that, that comes with that. But if you get into a state in running where you're completely beyond your mind, where you're completely in that flow state, and, and you know, it's like the definition of the flow state is not an absence of pain, but it's finding happiness in, the, yeah. in that exertion. 
and there there was a Hopi elder. Uh, Hopi is is their their tribe in central yeah, Arizona. Yeah. Mm. Some of the best runners yeah. anywhere. It's one of the um, reasons we uncovered actually for the yeah for the series. Yeah, yeah. So a, a Hopi elder told us when I was on a prayer run with a bunch of native kids in Arizona. He told us uh, as as we headed off for for Monument Valley. He said, "Find joy through exertion." Wow, and that was mind blowing to me, because how many of us? It, when, when we're really working hard, number one, feel joy. Number one, or number two, even know that we can feel joy in those moments of intense effort. And he said, not only do you need to realize that joy exists in the most extreme forms of exertion, but you can find it. You just have to be aware of it and find a way to, to tap into it. So that, I mean, that totally changed the way I race. That, only, that changed the way I run. It's like in those moments when you're really, really pushing to learn that joy actually exists there, that you can go beyond that pain by tapping into joy. I mean, that, that's how to get into flow. That's literally step one into getting into flow. And when you're in that flow state, as, as you know, it's like you can have experiences, you can tap into those same places within your being that you try to get to in your highest form of meditation. That said, Learning and knowing how to meditate is going to help you get into that state a lot easier. Mm. And if you get into that state in running, you're going to be able to get into that state when you're meditating. So I, I completely disagree based on experiences that I've had personally, but more importantly, seeing these cultures that have understood the connection between prayer, running, and the spirit for tens of thousands of years. Oh, I'm so glad you've said that because I've, you know, had a debate with myself over the, over the last few weeks because I took him on at what he said and I thought, well, that's probably got an element of truth about, you know, we're looking at the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system and you, when you're in the meditative state, you have to be in the sympathetic state. Um, but I have that, I've had that experience of being in a meditative state running, uh, granted I can't do it on demand, but I, and I have been there. Um, so I, I, I was having trouble with that sort of dichotomy, if you like, that, that sort of opposites. Um, and that gives me permission to go back to the thought, yes, actually, it is a type of meditation and it is a powerful one. That, and it's something that I've missed, like the last um, four years, Sanjay, um, you won't know, but I had a mum who had a massive aneurysm and my listeners know this story and was uh. left in a vegetative state, basically, with hardly any higher function at the age of 74. Um, and I've spent the last four years, I had to stop doing the long distance running because I had to completely focus on her rehab and that, you know, that and trying to uh, make a living uh, was all, that was 24 hours in a day, basically. Um, and now four years later, I've just written her book. Uh, it comes out in, in March this year. And it's called Relentless. And it tells the story of, of bringing her back and she's now completely normal again um, at the age of 78 against all odds. Um, and I credit, I credit, this comeback journey that I've been on with her on to the fact that I've done this running. If I had not have had the mental skill set that I developed through running, I wouldn't have been able to, to do the things that I did with her to look outside the square, to, to push through boundaries that most people would have you know, quit um, long, long time ago um, and to go up against the medical system and, and say, no, this is this, she will come back. And this, the story is very powerful because it's, and why I'm so passionate about getting this book out there is because it taps into these types of 
uh, tools that we discover when we are doing these extreme things, like you know, running long distance races, and we learn stuff about ourselves and then how the body works and how that we are capable of so much more than what your average local doctor will tell you we're capable of. I mean, have you ever been to a local doctor and they've said, look, you can't run anymore, you've got a sore knee? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean the, the, the thing to understand is that we physiologically evolved as runners, you know, from, from an evolutionary biology standpoint. And all your, all your listeners will know that the humanity's first advantage as bipedal beings was number one, unlike quadrupeds, we could step without having to breathe. I mean, if people can imagine what a dog looks like or a horse looks like in full sprint, when their legs are extended, you know, splayed out on, on, the, on the extension, their lungs inhale air. When the legs come together, as they all do, uh, they all come together in the middle of the, of the center of gravity. It's like that's when the lungs are forced to expel air. So they're incredible anaerobic beings, but we're the only animals by virtue of standing on two feet that can like trot and not have to breathe every single time wow. we, yeah. we take a step. Mm. And so that, that's given us a tremendous sense of endurance. You know, we can breathe, you know, multiple times per step, which quadrupeds can't do. Wow. And, you know, we, we can breathe every three or four steps, which also keeps our aerobic level kind of pretty low. Um, so it's like, if you, if you look at that, you know, human beings are meant to move on our feet. Yeah. The things that take us away from that state of being are all the, all the afflictions of modern day life. But mm. I would say, weirdly enough, like I, I, I'm on the medical team at the 3,100 mile race too. And 95% of the day-to-day -day trauma that the runners face, the pain, you know, we can take away through deep tissue. We can take away through rolfing, but it tends to come back day in and day out. And when that starts happening to runners, I tell them like, look, your problems are mental. Like there's no reason wow. why if these problems are taken away through, through some sort of therapy that they, that they should come back the next day. I find that 90% of injuries that people have through, you know, basically through non-traumatic running, racing is totally different. But when you're just in training and you're just doing like low stress um, low intensity type of stuff, you know, maybe heavy miles, the injuries, the re repeated use injuries are really due to bad form, which really comes from a state of mental unrest, from a state of anxiety and not allowing the mind to release and then the body subsequently to release. So it's not so much about and, yeah. the strength and the core strength and, you know, like we teach about, you know, you've got to have a a strong core and strong hips and things to be able to be upright. You're saying it's more of a mental um, stimulus that's, that's the problem, that we are, because of the stress that we are all under or that we are thinking we're under, um, we're actually inf inflicting that on our bodies as, as much as anything else. I mean, of course, since most of us don't spend day-to-day, -day, you know, spend, spend our day-to-day -day kind of in our body the way we might have as hunters and gatherers, yeah, yeah we, we need to do all the range of motion, all the core activities that we don't get from our, our, our standard nine-to-five yeah. jobs. Yeah. But still, like, you have plenty of students that do all of that and that still get yep. phantom injuries. And, and, and that'll take, you know, I can do everything yeah. right and I'll still be struggling with one or two injuries. You know? and that, come, that, that comes entirely from the mind. Like the 3,100 mile race is a great Petri dish for it because like I said, like 
you know, like last summer, Ashbihanal did it and I was his handler and I would kind of take care of his afflictions, you know, every break he had, every six or eight hours. And after a few days of, of him having calf pain and taking it away through simple, you know, deep tissue or, or rolfing or, 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 you know, active release stuff, you know, I just told him, like, I can take care of this every single day. But the reason why you're having these problems is somehow you're, you're not running fluidly, you know, and that comes in that race from overthinking, yep. from stressing out, from thinking about stuff that you shouldn't be thinking about, or mainly from, from thinking at all. Yeah. <laughs> and so I go, I go okay. back to the time, I go back to the time we spent with, with Sean Martin on the Navajo reservation, where all you're supposed to do when you run is listen to the sound of your feet breathe in the universe through your lungs. And when you do that, you begin to feel the importance of the connection of your feet and mother earth and your breath and father sky. And, and that nourishes you. And that gives you the sense of happiness that you need from running. But most of us, myself included, when I go for a run, I'm looking at my watch, I'm looking at my pace, I'm thinking about my workout. I might think about like, you know, what I'm going to eat afterwards, what I'm going to do afterwards. My, 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 my experience of running is already done. Yeah. You know, and I'm getting nothing out of each moment. I'm wow. only just checking off a workout. Yeah. And that's the difference. It's like unplugging from our playlist. You know, you can run with a GPS watch. We all do. Um, but not worrying about what your watch says to you, but yeah. listening to yourself, listening to your thoughts, listening to your heart and taking running as a spiritual discipline rather than as an escape. I mean, that, that's when the, the fruits of running really, really start coming to the fore. Yeah. And, and um, just going back briefly to that story with mum, the, the difficulty, like I haven't been able to do the long distance running in the, in the last, you know, three and a half, four years. Um, and I've missed the clarity of mind that came with that. You know, when you, when you spend hours a day running, as indulgent as that sounds, it, it actually, you know, you, I had time to work through the problems that I was facing in my life and to get them out. It's a very cathartic sort of a, a, a thing to do. And when you don't have that, you can be missing that piece quite badly. Um, and then, you know, so that I think running is a physical release and a spiritual release and a, and a mental release. It's a, it's all rolled into one. And, the connection that you say to, to Mother Earth, and I think this is one of the major, major problems that uh, especially our young generation are facing because we're so on devices and we're so connected all of the time that we have no time to just be in our own thoughts or just be with ourselves and to just be in movement. We're just constantly wanting entertainment or connection um, and, and not being connected to Mother Earth not being outside in the, the burning sun, the freezing rain, the, all of those things that really make us feel good. You know, when you go for a, a run in the storm, you can't come back, you know, anything but invigorated and like alive, you know? Um, and it might've been hard and it might've been cold and it might've been this, but you're alive, you're, you're feeling you're alive. And I think that they, in our very artificial world where everything's air conditioned and we jump from our out into a garage into the car and off to the mall and 
you know, all of these things is just disconnecting us so completely from from the way that we're meant to be living generally, like outside of just running, but just not being connected to nature is, is killing us. I think. Do you agree? I'm, I'm totally with you. Now, you know, imagine the 3,100 mile race on a city block, it's sidewalk, um, almost a K, it's, but it's a square. So it's like you're going around right angles. It takes place in New York city summer, you know, for, for almost eight weeks where the temperature last summer climbed above 41, 42 Cs um, for a day or two. But much of the time in, in the heat of the day, you know, you're talking between 32 and 36 Celsius. Again, it's like unrelenting. You're pretty close to some major roads. There's buildings all around. And it's not like you're running through the Grand Canyon. Yeah. But, that, but that said, it's like if you're, you know, on the South Island or if you're in the Grand Canyon, it's really easy to feel the power of mother nature. But our, our Navajo character's father is a, is, a, is a medicine man. And he told me, mother earth is under the sidewalk too. Absolutely. You know, mother earth is under the asphalt. That is mother earth. So on this course, you know, people are, are desperately, desperately struggling to maintain their connection to nature, despite being in an urban setting. And, you know, when you've got that type of intense focus on what you need, when it comes to you, it's, it's in a much higher dosage than you can imagine. So, like, yeah, in the 3100, that connection to Mother Earth, even though they're running around in circles yep. on a sidewalk, it's absolutely essential. Absolutely. And you don't need, you know, people often say, well, you know, like I've done all these races in the Sahara and the Gobi Desert and Death Valley and Australia and all that Himalayas. Um, to be honest, you weren't actually, it wasn't about the views. <laughs> it wasn't about yeah. what you were seeing keeping you going. In fact, most of the time, unfortunately, you know, your head is usually down on the ground trying not to fall over the next thing or you're so, so tired you can hardly enjoy your surroundings very often. Um, <clears throat> And, and, and of course, it is more inspiring to at least go to these places and, you know, in the before and the after and the cultural exchange that you have. But actually, during the race, it's not about the beauty, you know. It's in, in running around and around a block or running through a desert. They're both connected. They're both outside in nature, like you say. They both are. And one of the great things about this race happening in New York is that whatever you need whether it's a new pair of shoes, whether it's a very specific type of medicine, you're in New York City. Yep. So someone will be able to get, a volunteer will be able to get it for you within a couple of hours. And as you know, it's like when you travel for these like international ultras, very often, if you don't have something with you, yep. you're stuffed. Like <laughs> you are not going to get it. Yeah, it's, you, you, it's not going to be a good experience for you. No, it must be, yeah, it definitely has a, be a great advantage to have all of the, the things around you in that half mile block. Although it's, you know, mind numbing and people think, oh gosh, going around in a circle. I mean, I've only done like 24 hour races, um, but they are easier than running across a desert per se where you don't have access to anything. Um, and if you've forgotten something, you're in deep, deep trouble, physically in, in trouble. Um, but it, then it all does become about the mind and what you are what you are doing there. Um, so this this movie is coming to New Zealand. This film is coming. Yeah. To so tell us. Yeah. About it, it. So from February tenth through twentieth, we'll be 
traveling from, I think we're going to be in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, um, maybe a few other places in between doing single night screenings. It, the, the information is going to be up on our Facebook page, which I think is facebook.com forward slash 3100 film. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, after the 20th, if you can't make one of those screenings, we'll be up on all the online platforms. But um, Lisa, I, I, w- I would love to have to be able to, to, to ask you questions at one of our screenings. You know, I'm not sure what city to. you're in, but it would yeah. be fun. It would be really, really fun. I think we can make that happen. I live in a little place called New Plymouth, so you're probably not coming here, although that would be awesome. But I can travel to, you know, Auckland or Wellington or something to, to make sure that I get to see this. And uh, I've seen the movie, but to actually meet you would be, of course, just, you know, awesome. Um, and I, you know, people out there, how do they get tickets so they can just go onto Facebook and find out where the screenings are, get their tickets via that way? Yeah, the, 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 the movie screenings are going to be in proper theaters in all of those cities. And so, you know, on our Facebook page, there's links to the times and dates and we're going to be adding a few more things here and there. Um, but yeah, all the tickets can be purchased online. Fabulous. And we'll put all the links in the, in the show notes and stuff and all that. Um, I do want to ask you a couple more questions about you and your background because you've had a fascinating life. This isn't the first movie you've done. Um, tell us about how did you get into filmmaking? Because I'm very fascinated by filmmaking. I made a, a couple of, well, eight documentaries, but on a very, very low budget documentaries. Um, and I, I want to know, you know, how did you fall into this area and do the amazing things that you've done? So tell us a little bit about your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. You know, <laughs> I, I, I moved from California to, to New York to basically, you know, as, to, to just study with Sri Chinmoy and spent a few years, even with a good university degree, you know, just spent a few years working in health food stores and just you know, getting to understand who I was and what yeah. I really wanted to do in life before launching into a career or whatnot. But Sri Chinmoy had a lot of friends from Mother Teresa to Desmond Tutu and Mikhail Gorbachev and Mandela. And as I got more interested in kind of humanity, specifically in, in like international development, humanitarian aid, human rights, I began having opportunities to work with some of Sri Chinmoy's friends. So wow. I got a chance to, to work with Desmond Tutu and, you know, a ton of other people and gradually kind of like made my way into the world of um, humanitarian aid and human rights. Wow. So I, I kind of worked in that, in that sphere for about 15 years till around 2010, 2011. Um, and I, uh, you know, realized that a lot of the projects that I really, really enjoyed were ones that required me to take photos or to make little small documentaries, just being the only person with a camera for hundreds of miles. Yeah. And be- I began making some short films, like my first one, that most of them have been on sports, weirdly enough. My, my first one was called Ocean Monk, and it was like an, a personal exploration of the connection between meditation and surfing in the winter in oh, New York wow. City. Oh, wow. Of all things. I mean, there is surfing, like, you know, in New York City. In the winter here, you know, you might walk through, you know, half a meter of snow or a meter of snow to get to the water. Uh Um, But you can imagine, like, when the city is going, like, 24 hours a day to be out in the water with no one else around, uh, it's probably the only experience of real nature we can get in New York City. But my, my second film explored, you know, kind of a curious aspect of Sri Chinmoy's life. 
you know, after he stopped being able to do distance running, he took up weightlifting yeah. and he lifted, he lifted astronomical pounds. You know, in fact, when I was in New Zealand in 2002 and 2003, I was actually on a three-month trip with him. Wow. And one of, one of the cutest things he did was he went to a farm, you know, not too far away from Taupo, uh, a sheep farm. Yeah. And um, sheep were put into little cages and put onto this contraption that Sri Chinmay could sit under, and he would, like, push up. <laughs> you know, a cage of, of a, with a sheep on each hand and, you know, lifted a thousand sheep. Um, it was just, it was really, really cute and childlike, but also kind of mind boggling in the physicality. Yeah. I made a film called Challenging Impossibility, but then kind of went back to my human rights roots and made a film about the, the exploitation of farm workers in the United States. And that was, that, that actually achieved some success. You know, we had some famous people yes. that were involved. Yeah, like um, Evelyn Goria and Eric Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, fantastic. And, th- and then this movie, 3100 Run and Become, was my second, you know, big feature-length project. Wow. Oh, I, I should add as well, just jumping back to the last topic, that there have been two Kiwis that have done the 3100-mile race. Yes. Um, a, yep. a man named Jade Lynn, um, who did it, I think, in 2006 but there is a three-time female finisher of the race, Harita Davies. Um, she lives in the States, but she's actually going to be in New Zealand with us for all these screenings. Oh, wow. Um, because she's doing a series of events during that time called the Peace Run. Mm-hmm. Um, it just basically, it's like an Olympic torch-style relay where they're going to be running from Auckland all the way down, you know, obviously with the ferry all the way down to Christchurch and stopping in a zillion schools. Wow! So she'll be at all the she'll oh, be at all the screenings too. Oh, fabulous! I'll get to meet her hopefully. Um, and we also you, have you another very famous lady who used to do the two thousand kilometer race um, in New York City, um, uh, Sandy Barwick. Oh yeah, she's a legend. One of, who was my um, role model, if you like, as a little girl growing up, and who oh, wow. um, who came with me to Death Valley when I ran through Death Valley. An incredible woman, uh, feats that uh, again just defy. Uh, I think she had nine world records. Um, I think some of them still stand. So um, yeah. Yeah, we've got a you know, great tradition in New Zealand of incredible runners. And, and she was certainly way above where, anywhere where I ever got to. Um, so we've got some amazing people. And on the note of Sri Chimnoy, I want to tell you just a little cute story. <laughs> I was in the Nationals. Uh, so we have the Sri Chimnoy 24-hour race in Auckland every year. And... Um, it was, it was actually very, very sad. Well, we were doing, it was, it was in 2007, uh, and we were doing the 24-hour race. And a day before the race, um, Sri Chimnoy died, as you would well Aww. know. And, and so the people were devastated who were organizing oh. the whole race. Oh, no. And so they all just dropped everything and flew to New York, basically. And uh, I didn't really understand the whole Sri Chimnoy uh, movement at that stage. I just, just was a runner turning up to the race to run. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the race was no longer happening. Um, so I, I, one of the other runners and I, we decided we're doing it anyway. So we just we ran around the track for our... <laughs> well, I only actually made it to 20 hours that day. And it was uh, uh, absolutely torrential rain. Um, oh and my God. Poor, the poor people in the street chimney, they were just so devastated. They just had to go, you know, they just had to be there um, to say goodbye to their master. And, and it was just a, a really, um, 
for us back home running around in the rain, me and one other guy, and it was one of those special memories because it wasn't an official race. It wasn't going to be the official national race. Um, and I'd been trying for years to qualify for the New Zealand team to go to the world champs. Um, so I, I had to wait another year before I qualified, but we did get there in the, in the end. But um, yeah, just the dedication to him was, was really moving. And that they all just, they just dropped tools and, and all just flew to, to New York overnight. It was really, um, they were so, they were so devastated, obviously, um, because he was such a great man. And, and he was a man who, who really unified the religions rather than, you know, being so dogmatic from what I understand. He was a very um, unifying figure. In, yeah, in yeah, for sure. I mean, his philosophy was, was, was love of God. Again, from an Eastern tradition, we, we don't really have the, the singular concept of, of God being just, just, you know, a masculine energy. Yes. You know, it can be anything and everything. And, you know, we, we worship many different forms of, of the divine. But, you know, his was, a, you know, kind of an ancient path that way. But at the same time, it was very accepting of people, no matter what their backgrounds were. Mm. And, you know, he felt that you could live in the outer world and still achieve the highest. You didn't necessarily need to become a monk and renounce everything. And I, I know he loved New Zealand. You know, he, he had a, he's had a, a long friendship with a number of Kiwi runners like Alison Rowe, who yes, you yeah. know, he, I think he first met during the, uh, the New York City marathons. And, you know, just to my great benefit, when we opened the movie in theaters in New York City in, in November of 2018, it was during the week of the New York City Marathon, and Allison was there to be inducted wow. in the New York City Marathon Hall of Fame. Oh. And she came to one of our screenings and, and did a panel. So I got to meet a, a, a lifelong hero of mine. And yeah, it's like it, it's, it's interesting because all the people that have met Sri Chinmoy still have, you know, you know, some sort of a connection with yeah. the activities that his followers still kind of hold around the world. Yeah, yeah, even you know, even my life. So through that, we we connected in some weird, weird, bizarre way. You know, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, and and the, the the one that you did with um the, on the food food chain. Tell us a little bit yeah. about the food chain movie. Um, and that, that was all about uh the the, the state of conditions for workers, uh, migrant workers. Yeah. So it, m most countries require some sort of foreign labor to pick their food. Um, and especially when you look at like industrialized countries. I mean, even England, you know, has had pre-Brexit, you know, had a lot of, a big requirement for Polish workers, for Chinese workers, for Thai workers to come seasonally to pick food. You know, we know these are the hardest, most labor intensive jobs anywhere in the world. And most people in developed countries don't want to do that kind of work, no matter how much it pays. Mm -hmm. But you know, as we know, those types of jobs don't pay much at all. No. Uh, I guess the, the, the big corollary in, in the South Pacific are the, the fishing fleets with a lot of indentured Thai workers, Filipino workers, Burmese workers working wow. in essentially, some, in some cases, like realistically slave-like conditions. Yeah. But the movie really delves not just into personal stories, but looks at the kind of economic system behind it. Hmm. Most of us, most places in the world kind of follow a food system that America set up. And, and that's like the supermarket grocery system where we expect to buy the cheapest possible food. Good quality, but like very low prices. 
And, you know, Walmart in the U.S., a big chain kind of started that. And from their standpoint, they insisted on buying at ultra low prices from farmers and from meat producers and dairies, um, but buying in very, very high volume. And that created a set of conditions that not only have made it really hard to be a farmer in the U.S., but has made farm work essentially, you know, extremely low wage. Yeah. Now, we've see, we see these supermarkets all over the world. Yeah. And this is really a model that was created in the U.S. and exported to other countries, even though, you know, obviously there's, there's chains that are completely, you know, owned by people in their country. But when that supermarket system, that idea of convenience and being able to have the same types of food, you know, 365 days a year, that's made us in the U.S. rely on a lot of like New Zealand blueberries. But at the yep. same time, you know, you guys get a lot of stuff into your country that are, that are not seasonal, that aren't yep. grown in New Zealand, but that you still expect at very low prices. And we don't necessarily know the ripple down the food chain that it's causing farmers to really, really make very little. At the same time, it creates this reliance on labor that's very colonial, that's very almost kind of feudal yep. as well. And that's what the, the movie Food Chains kind of looks into. Well, thank you for bringing that to light because it, it is a, a worldwide problem. And, uh, you know, we, we have migrant workers here as well from the islands yeah. and so on. Um, and I, I, when I was a young girl, I used to work on, on fruit, on, you know, apple picking and kiwi fruit picking. I can tell you it's bloody hard work and very little money. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. So, yeah. you, 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 you 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 absolutely know that it's it was it's not something you would ever want to do the rest of your life. Oh my no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather run the thirty one hundred actually. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Look, Sanjay, we've I know I've taken up so much of your time today, and I just really wanted to thank you for all the work you do, all the goodness that you put out into the world because it's very very powerful what you are sharing, um, and you're making people think, and you're making people aware of some of these humanitarian stuff that you've done earlier and also with this new wonderful movie that you brought out. Everybody, you have to go and see this movie. It's, if you're into running, obviously you have to go, but if you're into just finding out about what the human body is capable of, what the human mind is capable of, and you want to see very average, and I put that into you know mm -hmm. uh, quotation marks, average looking, average appearing people doing incredible things. And that's the beautiful thing about ultramarathon running. We don't all look like Usain Bolt or Paula Radcliffe or, um, or some, uh, you know, elite uh, specimen. We're just normal people, but with very, very uh, strong minds and strong uh, willpower to do things. And, and in this case, it's all about the, the spiritual side as well. Um, so thank you very much for doing this movie, for putting it out there. Um, and I can't wait to see it. And I hope we can connect and I can get to one of those screenings. That would be absolutely fabulous. Me too. It'll make my entire trip worthwhile. <laughs> right. We're going to make that happen. Thanks very much, Sanjay. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lisa. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.